Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's like it's so I find it so um, like who you vibe with, right? This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by an award-winning journalist, writer, artist, keynote speaker, and a proud member of the Gixan Nation. She currently works as a television, radio, and online reporter, a triple threat for the CBC, amassing one of the most impressive journalism resumes in this city. You've seen her reports in the Globe and Mail, The National, and CBC's The Current, and you can follow her multiple award-winning column and radio segment for the CBC, Reconcile This, which explores tensions between Indigenous peoples and institutions in British Columbia. It's a column that led to many policy changes, including changes at the Ministry of Children and Family Development. Aside from her so many awards, she's given a TED Talk, and her art has been featured on the Toronto Transit System, 33 English malls, and the Calgary Airport, not to mention she has a large mural in Jiangxi, China. She is currently completing a book about the missing and murdered Indigenous women that weaves in her own story of surviving violence as an Indigenous girl. She is a natural-born storyteller. She is Angela Starrett. Angela. Hello. How are you? I'm well. Thank so you nice for that to see you. long, 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 long. I was like, when is this going to end? Was it too long? <laughs> it was great. I was just like, is he, he, he going to take a breath? That was very good. I cut out so much stuff when I'm going through your resume. And then I felt bad. I'm like, oh, she's going to be upset because I cut this out. Oh, but no. You can I do it in one line. Just journalist <laughs> person. Stop being so modest. I'm very excited to have you here. And I really do appreciate your time. I know you have a very busy schedule. By the way, congratulations on your Canadian Screen Awards nomination for Best Local Reporter for your series, Unbroken. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really um, honored that the award, the nomination is shared with uh, Farah Morales. She's mm -hmm. a former CBC Vancouver reporter who oh, okay. I admire. Um, so I'm cheering for, for her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. Some camaraderie in yeah, the journalism community. Of course. Right? Yeah. yeah. The biggest news story in the country right now is the Wet'suwet'en pipeline conflict. And as of recording, there are meetings between the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and ministers from both the BC and Canadian governments. But I really want to discuss the news coverage. Mm -hmm. Full credit to you. From January 2019, you have provided explainers to the tensions over the Coastal GasLink pipeline with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. But as Robert Jago pointed out in a Canada Land article, there was a lot of conflicting information coming out from different credible news sources, from the number of hereditary mm, chiefs mm -hmm. in opposition to the pipeline. There was that number about 85% of the Wet'suwet'en people supporting the pipeline, but no source of where that came from. Mm to accusations that, you know, the protests were foreign funded. Right. Is it frustrating for you to see that the basic facts are unclear when reported by other outlets, some other outlets, I should say, despite the fact that you and others have put so much work into this story? 
I mean, on one hand, it's so it's very frustrating because it happens all the time, every day. I mean, the biggest, I think, mistake I heard early on that is still being uh, the mistake that's being made is people are calling um, it the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Mm. And that happens a lot. They're like, from the Gitsan First Nation. And I'm like, no, my First Nation is Gitnamax, yeah. and I'm from the Gitsan Nation. So you see um, this very... Um, like stuff that's boilerplate for yeah. me. And I feel like every Canadian should know the difference between a First Nation and a nation. Mm-hmm. People still really grappling with that. Like, I don't understand this. And very simple stuff. And when I did the uh, the story in 2019 about, you know, the difference between hereditary and elected leaders, mm-hmm. um, which now in our vernacular, um, in our public discourse, seems very simple, the way that I structured it and the way that I worded it. But before then, there was zero appetite because it was so complex for people to understand and it was so sophisticated and it was so nuanced and it was so inside baseball. No one cared. Now there's been this conversation forced where people have to learn about this stuff. But what we're seeing and what's frustrating is to see um, people saying wet sweatin', um, to see people say, you know, there's 18 of the Wet'suwet'en First Nations disagree or, you know, are pro-pipeline. And I'm like, first of all, there's six Wet'suwet'en First Nations, Mm -hmm. five who I believe are on board with the pipeline. What everyone else is talking about, I think it's the 18, I'm not sure about the the number of the surrounding First First Nations who are Dalkath or Carrier people. Mm -hmm. Those aren't Wet'suwet'en. And Mm -hmm. so it's like people are just like, well, whatever, you know, the people up there. (laughs) Completely ignoring this... History and culture. Yeah, but then also there's a side of me that goes, oh, so remember when the colonizers first came over and they did things like, well, we don't know how to pronounce Newtonal, so let's just call them the Nootka. Right. Right. And you see yeah. that happening. So now it's like we're becoming or not we, but they are becoming wet sweatin'. They are becoming eighteen wet sweatin' yeah. First Nations. So you see this and Justin Trudeau, uh, Andrew Shear, multiple, you know, except for people like Nathan Cullen who are on the ground, mm-hmm. politicians who are not getting the facts right and simply doesn't don't really seem to to care if they do or not. So right. there's a frustration, but it's like, oh, we're we're here again. You know, we're in eighteen sixty seven again. You know, yeah, sure, yeah, and I wouldn't expect too much from the news consuming public because they're there to learn, right? But certainly, when it comes to journalists having the responsibility of getting the basic facts right, we put trust into journalists, especially when there's a legacy media name behind someone. You expect the basic facts of something to be correct, especially when it's being reported as news. Yeah. So we're the gatekeepers of information. We should we're the bedrock of our industry is facts and mm-hmm. accuracy. So that should be a number one go to. So why is it different when it when we're talking about indigenous people? Mm. Right. And there's always this sort of um, inference in the background or this frequency in the background that, oh, indigenous people are less than Um and but also politicians, politicians, the federal government, who is um, the main. I mean, band councils are at the end of the day are you know the federal government is responsible for them. There's a the mm-hmm. crown relationship with First Nations is huge, massive. It's the, it's the bedrock of colonization. It's the bedrock of the relationship right now. So they should be getting it right as well. Mm-hmm. But when we see that, you know, we that sort of the. Um, the, the the tone, it's sort of the undercurrent and it's, you know, the, the pattern or the, 
what am I trying to say? It's, um, yeah, it's, it's the, it's what people are listening to for, for, um, guidance and right. that's being, you know, wrongly said. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of frustration and, but there's a lot of like, oh yeah, right. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Like not a surprise. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Is this also a case where although the Unistaden resistance camp was set up in 2010, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. to block access to the Wet'suwet'en territory by pipeline corporations, mm-hmm. some elements of the media just underreported that story so much, particularly in the last year, that when it escalated to the point that it's at now in mm-hmm. 2020, with the blockades and the protests across the country, some media was just not prepared to really deliver the news in clarity? Yeah, I mean, I think what got people interested in the story was the police presence last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the uh, all, all of that commotion we heard in the news. Um, I don't think it was they weren't prepared. I just think they're, they never are. I mean, if you hmm. ask somebody, like, what exactly went down in Gustafsson Lake? What happened at uh, Ganawage? Um, what happened with the Mohawks in Oka? Like, what what was that about? Mm-hmm. Do you think most people will know? No. I mean, probably you, because you're too, I don't know, you look younger. I, do, I don't really know. I'll be honest. I'll plead my ignorance but to But you're that. probably, that was, Oka probably happened before you were, like, yeah, that was in the, high school or something. That was... Right? <laughs> It happened in the 70s? No, No? it happened in the 90s. 90s. Okay, so I would have been in elementary school. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, but I mean, a lot of these things keep on popping up. Delgamoch, right? Yeah. Who knows what happened in Delgamoch, right? I know because I grew up with my uncles talking about about it all the time and people, you know, up in that area might. But it was huge. Um, But I think times are, this this crisis, as people are calling it, this conflict or... um, is 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 a seems to be different, like because people seem to be forced into these conversations mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. It's just sort of the timing of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll admit, I mean, as I just pleaded my ignorance, it has forced me to read and dig deeper, especially mm-hmm. just in preparing for this interview because I wanted to know, yeah, at least what I was talking about and getting even the pronunciation right because. Aside from your explainer, you have one of those great videos, which was, again, made like a year ago. Mm -hmm. I've heard like five different pronunciations for Wet'suwet'en. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that's an interesting conversation in itself, because when you go up to the territory, you'll hear, you know, there'll be an elder or there'll be an activist who will say Wet'suwet'en. I consulted with 12 elders, community leaders and um, at the crux of it is, is this cultural center where the community takes their guidance um, and was told Wet'suwet'en. But the, there's always different dialects. There's always mm. different um, modernizations, like even um, for the, the the way that we say, we don't have a word for thank you in Gixan, but we, Gixanama, but we have a word for from my heart, which is sort of the same thing as thank you. Or I guess it can be translated that way. But when you go back home... Um, the is youth, that hum- Hamia? People will say back home, Hamia. 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 But but a lot of people from back home will also say Amia. So there's different Mm. ways of just saying that, right? And so it's hard if you're not in the know about culture, you know? And I find a lot of Canadians, they're just like, I'm Canadian. I'm Canadian. It's like, (laughs) well, where are you really from? Yeah. And they're like, well, Ireland. But that was like, you know, 
a hundred years ago. And it's like, it's not that long ago. Yeah. Like, you know, to, to build that connection. But I find people are, you know, it's, it's for them, it's very anthropological, like, oh, there's different dialects. And even Mm. among your people, there might be, you know, disagreements about the modernization of the way you say this word or that word. So even at CBC, there's been discussion about like, who should we take the lead from when we're saying Wet'suwet'en, because we have to have one way for all of us to be consistent, right? Right. So for us, we decided we will say Wet'suwet'en, but Wet'suwet'en is okay. Okay, good to know. Yeah, Wet'suwet'en, no. <laughs> I'm going to feel very self-conscious every time I say that word now, but uh, please do correct me at, at any time. You've reported that anti-Indigenous hate has been on a sharp rise since the protests, mm-hmm. and several outlets have reported how they have to take down the comment section or actually go in and delete comments because there's mm-hmm. so much hate being generated online. There was that awful racist comic in the mm-hmm. Calgary Herald. And then you reported that there were two incidences, at least two incidents of offline threats and violence right here in Vancouver. What effect has this news story had on Indigenous hate that we see? The news story that I did or the the Wet'suwet'en Sto- the, ent- the entire conflict, yeah, the, like, the entire story. So um, the anti-hate groups that I talked to, because I kind of wanted data, right? As journalists, mm-hmm. we want the facts like as they're presented in sort of data because um, you can get anecdotal ad- evidence, but, y- you know, I mean, it, you'd have to kind of talk to a white person and then an indigenous person who experienced the same thing and, mm. you know, take a lot of work. So we want data. Yeah. And so <clears throat> the data that they collect is is online mostly because it's really hard to be out on the street just tracking people getting beat up or whatever, right? Sure. So a lot of it is online and a lot of the like physical attacks um, are posted online as well. Like people will post pictures of the people that attack them or talk about it. Mm. That's how I ended up doing the BMO story. Somebody posted on Facebook. So right. tracking it online is actually a great way to, to do that. And so they've noticed, these anti-hate groups have noticed um, a spike, I guess, over the last two weeks of... Um, uh, violence, uh, death threats, um, uh, and racism against Indigenous people um, since the protests began. Um, I found it really shocking to start when I started to see stuff popping up on my social media about the physical attacks, hmm. about um, white support skinheads. I haven't even heard of skinheads being active since I lived on the street in the 90s. And so to hear about skinheads or white supremacist groups showing up at protest and assaulting elders. Right. Um, and the woman that I talked to, Wendy Nahaney, that was in my story, she was with her 14-year-old boy. And 14, you might, like when I first saw him, I actually thought he was, like he looks very young. Mm-hmm. So to just imagine seeing an indigenous woman, a mother and her son in a car, they're just like happy they were waving to her son's friends at a bus stop and having some guy you know, clean shaven, well dressed, didn't seem to have any mental health issues, screaming, you know, you effing Indians, you know, you're going to get hurt and you effing <laughs> see you next Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and all these like disgusting, horrible, awful things. And then slamming her car with a wagon in her parkade. Like it was, it was extremely scary to hear her say, I just sat in my car and said, Creator, please help us. Please let him go. And yeah. then. You know, to hear that she's also now having trouble um, filing a police complaint about that too. Really? So, 
Yeah. So huh. she, I don't, haven't talked to her today, but as of yesterday, the police still had not filed a report, even though she has the phone number of a witness, hmm. um, a security guard. They were There was a film crew there. So she, okay. there was a security guard there who she got his phone number, gave it to the police. She got pictures. So... And then to hear about the guy getting punched in the face and then don't mess with our effing pipeline. And this is just a guy who he doesn't want to have anything to do with the pipeline. Yeah, he's just minding his own business. All. Yeah, But he's, he's also like, I know a few people like this they, because it scares them. And some people, um, like my son's dad, for example, like he is kind of annoyed that like he can't get to work every morning mm. and make money. And you know what I mean? With the people blocking the road and stuff. And sure. So this guy is just like, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But because he just looks indigenous, mm-hmm. he's got long hair, looks indigenous, dark, and gets punched in the face, shattered his glasses. It stitches, I think, as well, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's just, I mean, it that, st- that started to scare me and still does, actually. So yeah. today my son left the house like full on, like he doesn't, he's not thinking about this and I'm not talking to him about it, but... You know, he wanted to go to school and his regalia to go to Hobier. And then he, I said, no, because it's, it's expensive. I don't want to lose it. And then he like wore his ribbon shirt and this Nishka thing and was all proud. And then part of me was just like, is he going to be OK? Yeah. You know, like he's going to be on the bus and like he's going to be walking down the street and mm-hmm. he's going to be a target because no one else is going to be dressed like that. You know, yeah. so and I haven't been wearing my beaded jewelry. I've been like and a lot of indigenous people have been doing that, like just taking. I mean, some people are loud and proud and they don't care, but sure. it's it's there's fear there. And I think that's kind of the sad part of all of this yeah and i think it's important to highlight that when conflicts like these come into the public consciousness it's not necessarily that they create anti-indigenous hate or hate for people that hate was always there but Mm. suddenly you start to see it manifest itself outwardly Mm -hmm. right and that obviously must be scary for any indigenous person i mean a lot of people of color a lot of indigenous people already face that but then as you said, to be so self-conscious about what you wear mm-hmm. or your child and this and the story of the mother and her son in the car, that's I mean, that's harrowing. Yeah. That someone would She's just dropping her son off at school at nine in the morning. Yeah. And the other guy was ten AM in the morning too. So it's just like yeah. It's just so so much to think about and so many layers to peel back about mm-hmm. both of those situations. But the online hate stuff too is uh, like when people read it, like especially when they're getting tagged themselves and it's like, go drink some Lysol and goes down on a corner and like all these stereotypes, mm. you know, that like you said, have never, have just never really gone away. Yeah. Now people are emboldened to share how they really feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you face a lot of harassment as it is being indigenous, being a woman, being a reporter. Have you faced increased harassment, whether that's online or offline, as the story develops? Um, you know, it's interesting because I feel like there was a couple of radio shows I hosted a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago. Um, one of them I remember was the Colton Bushy stuff. Mm, right. And I feel like some of these things that I've done have just really thickened my skin. Hmm. So... It's kind of like when you have like a broken bone or you have something hurt and then over time you're like, is it, am I getting used to the pain or is it getting better? Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so, so yeah, like that Colton Bushy thing, like that was just harsh. Like people saying, you know, he deserved to die and, you know, he was stealing and, 
like like encouraging people to do the same thing to other indigenous people and just re- it'd be like hundreds hundreds of emails that I would get in our in our main like uh like CBC account and just going through all of them and just being like, and reading, like I used to read every single comp. We used to have the comments open in like 2013. Mm -hmm. So I would read everything. Really? Yeah. And I would, because I'd be like, oh, maybe there's tips in here. And I was just trying to be like a good reporter and do my due diligence. And maybe I made an error and like, I'd take it in full on like in Mm -hmm. 2013. Um, But when those really hateful racist um, comments started coming in after Colton Bushi, and I think there was some stuff with TMX. Um, I think my skin just became really thick, hmm. um, and now I'm just kind of like, ha ha ha, whatever. You have two followers, or you're clearly, you know, most of the time I just don't read them now. I like read yeah. like a couple lines. I think I I tweeted out something somebody um, wrote to me yesterday that was like, um, you should do a story about the hatred that First Nations people have against Canada. You know, oh, with, really? and so, but and so, with a lot of these comments, there's so much to unpack, right? Yeah. Like This person has is starting with zero, and like, where do you begin? And so, for me, it's like you don't. Like, yeah. I just so that's been that I think is what's been really good for me is that I've learned to set boundaries mm-hmm. in that I don't. Sometimes I imagine on, you must have to, especially when the feedback is that voluminous. Well, right? I'm not supposed to. I don't think on my my Twitter account, and sometimes I'm just like, ha ha ha. Whatever. You're not supposed to. I don't think I'm supposed to engage with them. Oh, okay, I just meant set boundaries. Like I think almost think you have yeah, to set yeah. boundaries. Oh right? yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to. Uh, like so, I don't read stuff anymore. I don't mm-hmm. take it in. So most of the time, like when people send me emails and stuff that are filled with hate or filled with like, like zero education, I like I will briefly skim it to see if there's any re- like huge red flags. But I don't. Mm-hmm. It's just too much. It's too much. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. And that, I guess that's the other thing. You I mean, that's an interesting point you Bruce brought up. When people are sending stuff like that, you want to make sure that it's not a direct threat. Like they know something about you. Or, mm-hmm. Right. So you kind of do happened... have to go through that stuff just for your own safety. Yeah. And that happened in the past before, too, where someone was stalking me and knew everything about me. And Whoa. which like. To be honest, like I put pretty much everything on Twitter, so it's not really. But like, yeah, when people are starting to be like, I know you just moved to Toronto. I mm. know that, you know, your parents and this and that, that starts to get really sketchy. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I mostly scan stuff to see if there's anything huge I did wrong, to be honest, sure. you know, like on air or something. But yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the new story as, as it is. And I just want to go over what I think are the key points of the story, mm-hmm. which I feel are still lost on a lot of casual news consumers. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go through three key points. Let me know if I have anything incorrect. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very possible. Mm-hmm. And let me know if there's anything that you also think should be reinforced when we look at the Wet'suwet'en pipeline conflict. So the authority of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs oversees the overall traditional territory of the Wet'suwet'en. Mm -hmm. Whereas the elected band councils, which were created as a result of the Indian Act, which is a colonial imposition of governance onto First Nations peoples, those band councils have jurisdiction just over the boundaries of the reserve, which is like a very small part of the overall traditional territory. That's right. So I think that's one premise that I think people need to start with when they start unpacking this whole conflict. Mm -hmm. The second is that... The 13 House chiefs of the five Wet'suwet'en clans ratified their opposition to oil and gas expansion 
through a potlatch four years ago. Mm -hmm. And currently, eight hereditary chiefs are in opposition to the Coastal GasLink Pipeline, which is a subsidiary of TC Energy, formerly known as TransCanada Corp. But the elected band council, which again, they oversee the reserve effectively mm. in their relationship with the federal government, they are in favor of it. The band councils. The band councils, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And then the Delgamook Supreme Court of Canada case in 1997 found that the Wet'suwet'en Nation is organized by a hereditary system with land rights and title for that territory. But despite that, the RCMP moved into the territory to enforce an injunction to allow Coastal GasLink to do its work in the territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those seem to be the key basic elements in understanding this tension. Is there anything you would correct or add to what I've said there? No, I think you had it. You had it bang on. Yeah. That took me a long time to put together, though, <laughs> yeah, right? And a lot sure. of it was, I'll, I mean, I'll be honest, a lot of it was from the CBC. Mm -hmm. And even when I put it together, I was nervous of like, oh, what if I don't have one of these key facts right or I misread it? Why is it so hard to get those key elements together? Well, I think it's hard because there's there's still confusion even at a governmental level about who has responsibility, right? Like you saw Justin Trudeau, I think a, a couple, I don't know if it was last year, a couple months ago, might've been just a few months ago saying, you know, this has nothing to do with us. And it's like, wait a second, <laughs> this is crown land. So yeah. you kind of do. Um, and then I remember people being kind of confused, like, because uh, I remember there was a woman screaming at uh, John Horgan at an event. And he said, well, I don't, you don't understand. This isn't my thing. Hmm. And so there's really confusion about and then Delgamuk, right people mm -hmm. are like well that's that settled rights and title and it's, it's like it settled some aspects of rights and title but it, it it left a lot of unanswered questions right and that would be something to talk to a lawyer about not me um my my uh my great uncle and my uncles testified in the Delgamuk. And that's something that's very sacred to us, but mm -hmm. it didn't settle the land question. It was we have, um, we did not extinguish our rights and title at the time of colonization, mm. but it didn't set out clear parameters. Because what's difficult to understand, I think, is that when we're talking about rights and title from a colonial perspective, the colonials see the land as chunks, parcels of land. Right. Whereas we see the land as here's our fishing hole. Here's our summer. Like a lot of indigenous people had summer homes and winter homes. And so people like European people thought they were nomadic. But, oh, okay. Right. Huh. So you'll hear that a lot. Well, they moved around a lot and they didn't really have their own land. Hmm. Right. And so we see our pieces of land when you're talking about hereditary systems and houses. Um, there's they're not big, huge chunks and they're huge swaths of land. Mm -hmm. But in pieces that might they're jigsaw puzzles and they might not make sense to the way that the colonials are thinking in terms right. of fences and how you use the land. And it has to be this very specific parameter. Mm -hmm. So. Um, different worldviews and different ways of understanding land and land ownership. So um, it's 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 not easy when you're talking about these conflicting ways of leadership, government, um, matriarchal um, perspectives, mm -hmm. um, the way we view land, the way the hereditary leaders um, represent the people. 
it's very at odds with common law, right? Of course, yeah. And so this is difficult for people to understand and unpack. And 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 also come but to But why tr- can't it be presented as such? Like I feel like a lot of the media frame was like, mm. oh, it's the hereditary chiefs versus the elected band councils and, you know, the the people elected these people, so we have to go with that is, you know, this very white colonial understanding of of the governance in in these territories what what you just said mm-hmm. in terms of how it's complicated and how it's it's not swaths of land it's like jigsaw puzzles i wish there was more of that in the conversation mm-hmm. than what we see yeah for sure well it's it's challenging right because you're in in news and in in how much people can consume so mm. i don't know if you're familiar with this but we have uh we can look at metrics at cbc so we mm. look at how much how long people spend on a piece. Right. So yesterday and today, my well, a little bit of today, the piece that I did about racism um, stemming from the Wet'suwet'en protests um, was number one mm-hmm. all day. And then the amount of time that people read it was for 48 seconds, which is very long. What? <laughs> very long. It's long? Very long. But that, was, that must have been a four or five minute piece at least. Like... T- uh, t- to read? Yeah. The whole piece, how long would it take to read that piece? Uh, yeah, I would say four or five minutes. Yeah. And so they're, all, they're not even spending a minute? Yeah. No, if someone spends like 59 seconds, that's like, holy moly. Like that's <laughs> Yeah. And so when you think about, I know I was showing an intern that and she's like, that is incredible. But when you think about that, so you think people read the headline, yeah, the display, um, the deck, the lead, maybe the first paragraph, and that then they're moving on, moving hmm. on to something else. And then the way that, that we take in TV, like videos, think about how much you can take in. Like, would you watch a full... 20 minute piece unless it was if it unless if it wasn't on Netflix right like if you're sure. just looking at videos for information you know I mean and that YouTube rabbit hole I know that game yeah, yeah. so like two minutes for us is a long time for news interesting so you got to think about the way people are ingesting and how much as a reporter you're kind of hamstrung by that right yeah. so Rafferty Baker did this incredible piece that everyone should read about the who's who right. of the yeah. Wet'suwet'en conflict that took him a whole week to do and who knows how long people I mean, it was one of our top stories and it's people are still engaging with it. Like, I think it's still number three mm-hmm. and people, I think, are spending maybe a minute on it or something, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. But this is people's attention span, right? So how much nuance can you get? And so the thing that I liked about that, like very basic um, hereditary elected chief piece that I did is that people would spend enough time on it. It was simple enough that they'd read the whole thing and get the like basic building blocks yeah. of what this is about and then have an appetite for more. Exactly. Later. Yeah. Yeah. What does this entire conflict and the way it's being reported in the news say about how indigenous voices are presented to a non-indigenous audience in our country? Well, I think that's shifting. Mm-hmm. I think the the ground is literally shifting beneath our feet right now. Um, the 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 racism stuff that is sort of new in the conversation is really ugly, but mm. change is hard. Um, shifting is hard. It's also scary for me that we could go backwards, right? And I kind of see That's that. That's always the risk, That's, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I, this is, I'm going, on Monday, I'm going on BBC World. It's like airs to 300 different stations all over, I think, mostly the U.S. Hmm. Um, wow. But 
uh, people are super curious about what's going on in Canada mm-hmm. and not just um, residential school, which also was new in 2016. Everyone was like, what? This is real. This actually happened to yeah. people. But this is different. This is we're learning about traditional governance. Mm-hmm. And what that's doing to the conversation is it's it's shifting in the way that Indigenous people are saying this hereditary system, I mean, it was quashed. It was oppressed. You know, the potlatch was banned. Mm-hmm. Our, every single... It was banned? The potlatch? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was banned. It only came back in the 50s. Oh, I didn't realize that. And wow. the Indian agents of the day didn't come in and say, oh, yeah, the potlatch is back now. Like, you can practice it. No one came in. Yeah. So many people didn't even know that, that it was okay to do. I mean, they'd go to jail. Wow. Some of my um, ancestors uh, went to jail. And I mean, this was only like 50 years ago, right? Or a little bit. Uh, longer than 50 years ago, but Mm -hmm. uh, people go to jail. If they organized in groups of six or more, go to jail. Like if they were trying to fight to get their Hmm. potlatch back, they go to jail. Um, Our traditional, my um, grandfather stopped speaking Gixanima to, he wasn't allowed. The Indian agents would come along and say, you can't do that Hmm. because if you wanted to get an education, if you wanted to have a beer, if you wanted to go to war, you would have to lose your status. And that meant not speaking to, in our circumstance anyways, and I mean, the Indian Act was Canada wide. Mm-hmm. Um, not organize in your clan, not organize in your house, not organize as according to your hereditary leaders. So this, um, what we're seeing is people. People are. I mean, people have been returning to their um, traditional governments for a long time now, um, and really trying to strengthen. You know, even the languages you see. But what we're seeing right now is people saying, you know, the hereditary leaders are who we are the elected mm-hmm. chiefs are and i think a lot of people don't know this but in many communities like i just went to bella bella the hereditary leaders and the elected leaders work very closely together mm. and strengthen each other mm. and sometimes that happens in Wet'suwet'en territory as well you know it's not always so polarized as you see it on the news sure but um i heard about a case the other day a child welfare case which would normally go to the the band the reserve the elected leadership but the mother who had her child taken way said went to the supreme court of canada and said you didn't consult with my hereditary chief Hmm. that's a game changer so this is what i'm talking about where we're seeing this massive shift happen right in front of our eyes where indigenous people are thinking about the possibilities of you know strengthening their traditional governments and you know non-indigenous people are for the most part throwing rocks at anything right (laughs) right? um and some are, are really like my my twitter is filled with a lot of settlers who are wanting to learn mm-hmm. and and struggling. A lot of them, I, I see people who might come off as racist, but they're struggling. They're really trying to learn. It comes off as racist. And then I see people who are very earnest and sometimes that comes off as racist as well. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> there's a lot of learning happening and a lot of flailing and a lot of brutal brutality too when you see people getting attacked on the streets and stuff. So yeah. there's a huge learning curve, but... It's a shift taking place, and I mean, it's ch- change. Is we're in that moment where it's hard to see what exactly is happening because we're right in the midst of it. But yeah. there's lots of there's lots of things happening. And I know it's a low expectation, but with a lot of things, I'm not just talking about indigenous issues. I'm just talking about my own life and the way I see conflict. As long as people come in with good faith, at least you can work with that. Right. At least mm-hmm. that's there's a step forward when people come into something and with admit good faith. mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Like I find at even where I work, you know, there's a couple of people who've been like, wow, we 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 
S H A T the bed on that one. You know, you can swear like if you want. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We shit the bed on that one. Um, so let's let's figure that out. Like, how can we not go wrong again, right? And so, yeah. and with me too, it's just like, oh, that was that was lame of me. I need to. Fig- but if you can't admit you made a yeah. mistake, then how are you going to move forward? Exactly. So it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's hard to have those conversations. I want to talk about your TED Talk. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible, by the way. Thank Thank you you for sharing that. Thank you for doing that. It's called Reconciling the Power of One Story. And one of the central themes is this idea of erasure. Mm -hmm. And you sort of caught me in a very good example of erasure where I didn't know that the potlatch was banned Mm -hmm. for so long. Mm -hmm. right? Like I had no idea. I've grown up here in Canada with a Canadian education. I'm ignorant to a lot of these issues. And do you mind if I ask how old you are? Sure. I'm 35. I'm going on 35. So you're young. And so for you, so that's where the change is happening, I think, is not with you, Mm -hmm. but with my son, (laughs) who's like nine. Yeah. Because I've even talking to 20-year-olds who are in university being like, I'm like, who are Indigenous, I'm constantly educating my peers. Mm. Because I I always think like people your age or, you know, in their 20s, like they're up to speed. But no. 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 And that's a big one, not being aware of the potlatch ban. Yeah, that is, right? And so I understood erasure as twofold in the way you described it. One, the exclusion of Indigenous history in our culture, particularly in our education systems. And then two, the stereotyping and even maybe not just harsh stereotyping, but like the homogenization of all Indigenous people Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Can you explain this idea of erasure based on your personal experience? Mm -hmm. So... Um, one of the interesting things that I find that happens every time I go to a new city. So, for example, I went to Montreal to do a film in Ganawage. This was like 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. And the guy who I was filming from, who was from Montreal, he said, oh, yeah, it's interesting. Like, there's no indigenous people in Montreal. Like, I never see any. So it's like it's like the, you know, all the diseases and everything. It like worked like there's they, it's like they're extinct. And I I was just. He said it in those words? Yeah. That's unreal. And I was like, so you know that six minutes away of drive is reserved? Yeah. One of the biggest ones in Canada. Uh, It's like right there, there's a lot of Mohawk people. Mm -hmm. They're kind of running it in many ways. Yeah. and uh, so I hear, th- and I hear that in Vancouver all the time. Like I don't like not the extinct part, but like I don't see any indigenous people. Like where are they? Because hmm. I always tell people like, how are you going to learn if you don't even know? Like you know, in media, like if you don't have any indigenous people in your newsroom, or you just have one, and that's the only time you come in contact with an indigenous person is in your like if they're your clients, or you have to interview them, or they're your coworkers. Like you don't have any. You know, and I always say this, like, I'm not saying just have an indigenous friend. That'll solve all the problems. <laughs> but but like, if you don't know any and people say, well, I don't know where they are. Like, I never see them. And I say, well, hmm. they're not riding on horses. They're not constantly performing ceremony for you. They're yeah. not going to be in the regalia. They're probably your next door neighbor walking on the street. They're lawyers, doctors. Yeah. You know, um, and I just find that. As an Indigenous person myself, like, I'm constantly fighting for a seat at the table mm-hmm. all the time to be like, I'm here. This is, you know, my 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 voice matters. The story matters. Um, and I think, thing, again, things are changing at, a, like, an elementary school level. Mm-hmm. Um, but this sense of erasure is very real. And um, 
it's hard to, to not, it's hard to be erased right now, right, with the Wet'suwet'en conflict going on. Um, yeah. All eyes, right? All eyes are on Indigenous people right now. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's like I said, things are changing right now and we'll see where that goes. But it's, uh, it's everywhere. It's, you know, you not learning about potlatch, mm-hmm. me not learning about anything about Indigenous people, not seeing any around, um, just, you know, kind of parsed out in stereotypes. Um, yeah. And I imagine that this filters into how Indigenous peoples are represented and portrayed and covered mm-hmm. in the media as well, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you have that erasure, if you know nothing about a subject, it's very hard for you to read more or learn what's happening in a, in a contemporary setting if or, you don't have any background Or on even it. not be afraid to ask questions, right? Mm. Important questions or have like nuance in your question. Or, right. You know, so, you know, people will come up to me um, asking me like some very basic stuff and it's just like, oh man, I got to start at the beginning, you know, <laughs> like let's let's start from 1867 or yeah yeah and it's yeah it's challenging because this this only happened 100 years ago right Mm -hmm. 150 years ago so um and indigenous people were here for in many cases you know 4,000 10,000 years before that happened and so many indigenous people that I speak to say you know Canada's just a baby Mm -hmm. and they have no interest in learning about the people that were here before or even acknowledging them yeah. And there is this real ideology that, you know, we weren't here before, we're inferior, we're less than. And it's, yeah, it's a it's a constant battle, even at times when you're like, oh, things are going so great. And then you're like, okay, here we are again. Yeah. yeah it's exhausting. And maybe you can only speak on your own behalf, or maybe you can speak on behalf of a lot of Indigenous peoples. But what does that do to your own identity. I mean, there are so many people that look at ancestry and narratives and culture as a way of forming their their identity. But when you have a society that has effectively erased your history and, again, homogenized all Indigenous peoples, what does that do? Well, I think it breeds internal racism. Internal racism. Yeah, hmm. definitely. Um, definitely some of the things I heard my dad saying growing up, you know, um, and just like, be careful who you say you're indigenous to. Hmm. And, you know, I'm, I still have to say that to my, like my son's dad's looking for a place. And I said, don't tell people you're indigenous. Wow. Because the people that are discriminated against are parents, Asian people, and indigenous. And so hmm. I'm like prepping him. I'm like, you know, say you're from Chile or say you're, you know, of another race. And he goes, I'm, I'll say I'm, I don't know, Chinese and Southeast Asian or something. I'm like, perfect. Um, you know, and so, you know, and sometimes I tell my son that like, don't, don't tell people you're indigenous and it sucks. Like it's awful. I don't want to do that, but you have to for a level of safety. Right. So that's really sad to hear to be, to be. Yeah. And so like, so like back in the day, like people, um, when all the ceremonies and, and governance and everything were banned, we did everything. Many indigenous people did everything in secrecy. So sweat lodges under the table, um, Hmm putting down the curtains, practicing everything in their homes. And so sometimes that's kind of carried on. And and it's not like an intergenerational thing. It's like modern day racism has done this, right? Because that the modern day racism is intergenerational and that's carried on. So, yeah, I think it it creates internal racism. It Mm -hmm. creates, um, you know, you're very protective and you're very careful about what you say to who and where. And yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And I mean, my son, like I'm always like tearing up, like when he leaves the house and he's, you know, all decked out and can I wear my ribbon shirt? And and he has an indigenous teacher and that's why everything's changed this year. Sure. He was not like this before. Yeah. So she's made indigenous people proud and they talk about the Indian Act and oppression and residential school and the potlatch and ceremonies and... She's very, she's an Anishinaabe woman, very proud. And so that's kind of like all the little white kids will crowd around her and be like, can you teach us about the potlatch again? Like, they're so hungry for that. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. And so my son, like, I'm like, this is like, let's let that be, let that go and go and go as long as it can. Because like I said, things can turn. For sure. Right. Like we're seeing in the States, like they're, you know, with Trump and everything, it's kind of, it's scary for people of color to be walking around, you see, you know, kid, black kids getting arrested yeah. and it's, you know, we can go backwards. And sure, so absolutely. right now I'm just like, let's ride this wave. Let's ride this positive pride yeah. right now. Yeah. It's just cool that your son gets to express this cultural identity yeah. you know, without having to worry about it. That's, totally. Presumably when we talk about erasure of indigenous identity, this also influences policymakers as well. And you mm-hmm. sort of touched on this in terms of how some leaders speak about mm-hmm. indigenous issues. That seems to be very troubling as well. That now you have these people that are in charge of mm. Canadian governance <laughs> and they're also subject to that type of erasure and whether they've, I mean, subject to the erasure in, sen- in the sense of the erasure of indigenous peoples, but now they're also in a position of authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's so much, right? There's so much, um, I guess, Indigenous people, like most people that I know who voted for the first time in 2015 voted for Justin Trudeau mm-hmm. and had this, you know, it, people were doing a protest vote to get Harper out. Yeah. Um, and Trudeau talked a really good game. Yeah. And you, and then you see, oh, he's fighting to not give kids on reserve equal funding you know he's in another court case to not give indigenous people back their land and mm-hmm. so uh it's it's kind of like a different rhetoric a different rhetoric but kind of the same impetus at the end of the day but i mean at the same time i wonder if it were andrew Shear in power um what would we be seeing right now would it just be raids and yeah satisfying you know i mean he is speaking in favor almost of vigilanteism right when you're hearing him talk about and that bizarre comment about protesters having to check their privilege yeah <laughs> which made no sense <laughs> yeah and that, those that that's what i'm talking about the emails that i get stuff yeah. like that and it's just like uh what like what where where what okay no i don't need to i don't need to think about this right now because it's too much you yeah. know there's so much to to be to describe and to educate on on those points but um yeah very 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 interesting times and it'll be i mean one of the things i heard on as it happens last night i think carol off asked nathan cullen would um the federal government, would the provincial government, would Scott Fraser and Carolyn Bennett be going up to Wet'suwet'en territory if it wasn't for all these protests barking up all over the country? Hmm. And he said, probably not. Yeah. We probably wouldn't see. Would we see the police still up there? Would we see more Wet'suwet'en um, people getting getting arrested and thrown in jail for, uh, you know, trying to protect their, their territory? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I 
I mean, probably not, right? That's what yeah. he said. He said probably we probably would not be having any of these conversations right now or have leaders forced into these conversations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a basic question, but I think an important one to understand all the stakes here. What is the importance of true representation, be it in our media or schooling or governance, for all people, but then also particularly for Indigenous peoples? Well, I mean, I think like like the example of my son's teacher, right, mm-hmm. who's Anishinaabe and knows all the nuances, can, you know, can can talk without hesitation about the impacts of the Indian Act, without hesitation about the impacts of residential school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, myself, I will see a story about racism in a very different way. I have very different contacts. I have very different news feeds mm-hmm. than my white colleagues, right? Who are like, oh, that, there's more racism right now? Who Somebody asked, <laughs> quite a few people asked me that really? a couple of days ago. Yeah. And I had to show them all the screenshots and everything, right? So it's a different conversation. It's a different understanding. I mean, from my perspective, there's different questions asked. There's different... There's a different a different narrative. And I think when colonization has purported from day one that indigenous people are not human, are inferior, are less than, you have people who really take that to heart. Mm-hmm. Right. Of and course. so in my field, people who say, Oh, like, because I try very hard, like when I have an expert mm-hmm. in my story, it's not a white person who's an anthropologist or it's not a white politician talking about indigenous people. It's indigenous people who are experts. Mm-hmm. Right. And so people, I think, might see those stories as less than and they might mm. not know why, but they give more credit to a white anthropologist or a white politician or a white city councillor for a variety of reasons that are probably cast in a number of stereotypes, yeah. right? They have more experience, they have formal education, um, you know, they know their stuff, they've, they've researched it, we trust them, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's incredible that I was nominated for Best Local Reporter of the Year because I constantly feel that way that people are like, oh, like it's just an Indigenous story, right? Yeah. And and, it, and if I had a whole bunch of white experts on an Indigenous story, it would seem more important yeah. or what people would be trusted more, right? And so... And you talk about that in, in your TED Talk, like these mm-hmm. obstacles you faced trying to tell the stories of Indigenous peoples, right? Yeah. And I think that's, I think things are changing, mm-hmm. but not, I mean, it's a slow space, it's a slow pace of, of, of change. Um, but yeah, it's it's conversations I have every day, I would say. And if not conversations with people, like in my head, like, should I say this out loud? Should this be another day of me raging? Or should I just be quiet? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I found that to be a very powerful part in your TED Talk. And, and it's not a spoiler alert because I think your TED Talk has a lot of value yeah. in it. But when you were talking about how you would present these stories to editors and they would say like, oh, another depressing Native story or the most ironic, which I thought was someone telling you, oh, you shouldn't cover Indigenous stories because you're Indigenous and mm-hmm. therefore have a bias. That still happens today. That still happens? Yeah. I mean, my newsroom is awesome, and I'm not just saying that, but I've worked in newsrooms all across Canada, and mm-hmm. 
this this is a really great newsroom and people listen and people are just like really good people. Mm-hmm. Um, not that good people can't have issues. Um, but uh, yeah, it's I definitely have had those conversations recently. Well, is, you know, is she like an advocate journalist? Because, <laughs> you know, I'm fighting to tell an indigenous story that matters or that's important or correcting somebody about their pronunciation and being called bias or um in terms of the uh which is a claim which it's an accusation that white journalists would never get about covering white politicians exactly (laughs) and that's that's the hypocrisy that i want to point out in case if anyone's missing the yeah and i always say that in my talks and i find there's always like crickets like and I don't know why, but I'm just like you wouldn't like most of City Hall is white, and you wouldn't get in trouble being a white reporter yeah. covering white. <laughs> and you know, keep in mind, like when I'm covering indigenous stories, I'm Gitsan, mm-hmm. and to be honest, I stay away from 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 that territory because mm-hmm. it's so. It's you know, it might be my cousin, and it might, mm. my cousin is the mayor of our town. Oh, okay, right, Fair, yeah. and so I do, and it's small, and it's just, it, it, I I stay away from that. Um, but keep in mind, when I'm reporting on Indigenous people, like there's more than 600 different distinct Indigenous nations across the country, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, yeah it's it, it sometimes it blows my mind. I'm like this, like I'm not even, I'm like 3,000 kilometers away from this nation. Like, why would I be biased or why would yeah. I have skin in the game? Like, it doesn't make sense. And they're like, well, you're Indigenous. I'm like, but I'm not Squamish. I'm not Tsleil-Waututh. Yeah. I'm not Stolo. Yeah. Like, it's a total, so there's... The constant kind of monitoring and scrutiny I think that Indigenous people are under is, and it's hard, it is hard as well, because the Indigenous communities are really small, mm-hmm. right? Like in Vancouver. So sometimes it can be really challenging to keep everything, um, I guess, like not have a community, right? So as a journalist, you have to have like, Basically, when you're in community, you have to have no friends. Yeah. Right. Like if you're in a small, like I have a friend who worked in Thunder Bay, and she's she's just like I just like I have my husband and my kid, and that's it. I don't go out unless it's for journalism stuff. Mm-hmm. And like I can't do that. Like I have a community, right? Mm-hmm. But it's but I have to constantly tell people like you're my friend, and I can never ever interview you. Yeah. Right. And have to say on air if I do like this is my best friend's fiance. Right. Right. So, and I find that's, that's a constant conversation that I'm having. Like, no, I cannot review your restaurant or whatever because we're friends, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, and because I think indigenous people are held to a higher standard of that Mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, it's, it's constantly in the back of my mind. You know, I'm constantly thinking about, am I going to be viewed as, you know, having more of a stake in this than yeah. another journalist would? But it is a higher standard, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Pamela Martin went to work for Christy Clark. Yeah. <laughs> Are you telling me they only became friends in that moment? I mean, they were friends beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have some stories, so I'm going to bite my tongue sure, on that. Sure, no, I'll let you bite your t- <laughs> One thing I do want to learn about, before we wrap it up here, your ancestry and your lived experience intersected mm. with a man who would be the UBC chancellor from 2002 mm. mm-hmm. to 2007, Alan McEachern. Tell me about how you learned about him and your personal interaction or perhaps non-interaction with him. 
I mean, I probably heard his name when I was 11 from mm-hmm. my uncles who would, you know, talk about Dadelgamuk and um, talk about, you know, how heroic our family members and our, our leaders were in that court case. Um, I'm trying to think when I really, I mean, I really understood, I mean, maybe in university, I mean, there's there's always, I feel like there's always a period of a person's life where they're like, want to disassociate from their family, right? Like, yeah. teenager or whatever, and you're just yeah, like, I don't care. Like, I don't care about that. I don't, <laughs> I don't, that matters to you, but it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. But I think, like, probably in my early 20s, um, started to to find out more about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was just always, like, kind of like an ongoing joke, right? Like, mm-hmm. he said, we, our, our land was extinguished at the time of colonization because we ate pizza and drove cars, right? <laughs> so, because we're not, you know, riding horses, or I don't even think we had, we know, we never had horses, but I don't know, because yeah. we were not, you know, in moccasins, and, you know, we have gas-powered cars now, and uh, our, our modern people that, that we're not, we don't have a right to our land. So this is kind of like an ongoing joke. But yeah, I remember he was the chancellor of our university and it always kind of was a shock, you know, and then walking across the stage and we're supposed to shake his hand and he's sitting in this giant chair that's all carved with indigenous designs and he's holding <laughs> like a I forget what they're called, like the the things that kings hold. A specter? Specter, yeah. yeah. But it's like a talking stick, like it's all carved. Oh. And he's like there in this chair, like, huh. you know, you're supposed to know. I think you're even supposed to bow to him or something and shake his hand. And I was just like, I can't. Like, I cannot do so that. You, you skip that part. I skip that part. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. That's a pretty surreal scene for you. I mean, you've you've learned about this man growing up. Well, I mean, the whole thing was surreal because the the guy that I was dating at the time, who was Simshian, he, I mean, we weren't allowed to wear our regalia to a graduation. We had to wear like the robe or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, he wore a war hat. He wore a wooden, like uh, almost like a cedar hat, but wooden. Okay. So it would be what warriors would wear to war back in the day. And he wore full regalia. And that was like, that's, it's just ridiculous to think that that was like a protest or (laughs) a sign of resistance to wear your traditional clothing at a graduation. Yeah. You know, important part of your life. So he, while he, while the UBC chancellor does have this indigenous art and design all around him. Yeah. Totally (laughs) ironic and disturbing all at the same time. And then, yeah, at the justice courts, there's a bust of Alan McEachern there. So it's, he's kind of just always looming, you know? (laughs) So what does his profile in our culture represent to you? Alan McEachern? I mean, does it represent ignorance? Does it. How do you see that? The fact that he there is a bust of him at the law courts and he was the chancellor at UBC, but he had said these things and ruled in certain cases. Well, I think that there's, I mean, I think there's an undercurrent always where, I mean, it's a little, I feel like, again, over the last two weeks, things have changed dramatically over the last year. Mm-hmm. But I mean, anywhere I go, there's always an undercurrent of like looking down at me like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, right. Uh-huh. And I feel like, you know, there's always the the... It's always white men in the back making decisions, right? And I mean, I think people probably, 
appreciated that or thought it was nuanced or interesting. What an interesting part of law. That's so <laughs> nuanced or that's so like they probably really regarded him. Like that's <laughs> you were part of this Delgamook and you made some very interesting comment. Like they probably like loved him. Yeah. I'm sure. Justice system loved him. Yeah. Right? They thought he was quirky or interesting or fascinating. And I think there's so many people out there that have these perspectives that are here. Jordan Peterson, you know, Um, so many different characters out there that are beloved. And I'd name off a whole bunch right now, but I don't want to get in trouble. But I see it all the time. It's like there's a constant undercurrent of like, you know, looking down like you're you are pathetic. But, you know, we'll give you your little whatever your trinkets Mm. for the day. Yeah. So, yeah. You will have the last word, and I want to ask you a question. It's reiterating a question that I've asked you already. In the context of your Reconcile This column, speaking to non-Indigenous peoples, some of whom may be completely disengaged from news or politics, can you reiterate again the importance of Indigenous voices telling Indigenous stories to a non-Indigenous audience? Well, I think the most important thing is if you want to learn something. I mean, I'm I'm conflicted about this, to be honest, because I do think Indigenous people, there needs to be more <clears throat> of us in newsrooms telling stories, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think that we end up getting weighed upon so heavily that you end up, you're always doing two jobs. So you're always just doing your regular job. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm a reporter, I'm getting the facts, I'm putting out stories on multiple platforms every day. And then I'm also constantly educating people. And, you know, I, I love teaching. I love people coming to me and saying, like, do you have any contacts for this this community at all? Mm-hmm. Or do you can you give me the context or can you break it down what this means? I'd love to help, but it it's so much and I'm not getting paid a double salary. Sure. Right. And so I think it's really important that people, non-Indigenous people like yourself, like you've gone over this and you've got it right. And you you weren't like you know, asking every single Indigenous person you know to educate you, right? You were taking it upon yourself to learn this through news articles, like being being an actual journalist or being an, a curious person who wants to learn about something. Mm-hmm. And so while I do think it is really important for, to you know, to be authentic and, and for Indigenous people to be the ones sharing the stories for, for a variety of reasons, I think that there, it ends up being so much pressure put on us and not every indigenous person wants to be a journalist right and so so it's not that we're not hiring them it's also really hard to recruit um you know media hasn't been so nice to indigenous people so when you Mm -hmm. walk into a community as a reporter even an indigenous reporter you know you're not and and you can't also be like hugging and high-fiving everybody you have to keep your distance of course it's hard it's a hard role to have um and not it's not everyone and it's not paid well right so (laughs) there's all these things that that are sort of barriers so while i do think it is really important to have an indigenous person or number of people in your newsroom i also encourage people to to learn for themselves and not weigh so heavily on Indigenous people or the lone Indigenous person in your newsroom because Mm -hmm. 
um, that's how I think change is going to be made, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's an excellent point. It does take two. And I think Mm -hmm. the culture as well has to take the onus to learn about Indigenous history, Indigenous culture. And of course, the starting point is schooling, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. And that's one thing that I realized that like, we didn't learn any of this in school. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. How do people follow you? How do they learn more about you, your social media, anything else you want to plug before we uh, Twitter, just my name. A great Twitter account, Angela by the way. Angela um, Twitter, really easy. Um, yeah, I mean, my Facebook, I don't, if people try to add me, I have a, I have a professional one that I don't really use. Mm-hmm. And then I have a private one that I pretty much don't add anybody unless I've met them in person. Mm-hmm. So Twitter's probably, and Instagram, my Instagram's kind of weird too. Like I'm kind of picky about who I let on there as well. <laughs> So Twitter slid in somehow. Somehow yeah. I got on. I yeah. got in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Twitter is probably the best way. And then yeah, reconcile this. Um, it's supposed to be every two weeks, but sometimes that doesn't work out. Sometimes it's every week or and every it is third a radio week. segment and a column as well. It's a radio column and an online column. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Reconcile this. So yeah, and I'm on, I'm a reporter for the early edition. So tune into that every day. You might hear me. <laughs> yeah, you might not. Angela, I am in awe of you. I am in awe of your work. I think you are an incredible gem in the mediascape here in BC and in Canada as a whole. You have a book. It's written. Might come out next year. Next year, we're thinking, yes. If this show is still around, can you include (laughs) me in your book tour? Of course. I would love that. Of course, yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. People, she is one of the best journalists in the city, a triple threat at CBC, television, radio, and online. She is Angela Starrett, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.